1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. Follow along as I read. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ or the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. There are essentially three sections in this passage of scripture that we've just read. Verses 1 to 5, verses 6 to 10, and verses 11 through 13. In that first section, verses 1 to 5, Paul refers to Israel's past to make some important points about the Corinthians and our own present. So we're, he's referring to the past so that we can apply or understand certain things in the present, both for the Corinthians then and for us now. The word of God continues to be relevant. Paul says that we should not be ignorant of what happened to our ancestors. Now remember, he's writing to a non-Jewish crowd. The Corinthian believers were almost all Gentile believers. They were not Jews. So when he writes to them and he says, this is what happened to our ancestors, how is it that the children of Israel are our ancestors? Because through Christ Jesus, we have been grafted in to that branch, to that tree, to that 
planting of the Lord. We have been adopted into the family of God. And we have been included in the inheritance of the children of Israel, just as God promised that to Abraham and to the descendants after. We have been brought in. And so he says, these are your, our ancestors. No differentiation. That's an incredible legacy. We don't trace our legacy back. Even yesterday I was listening to something and they were talking about generations back and going back you know, to the 1700s and so on. We're not talking about going back to the 1700s. We're talking about going back to creation. We're talking about going back to the promises that God made and the covenant that God made with Abraham. We're talking about going back to all that he has done for time immemorial to say, God, this is what we're connected to. We have an identity and a legacy and an ancestry that is phenomenal just because we are united in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter what else was going on. It doesn't matter what else has happened in your background. We are the children of God in this way. And so Paul says, oh, look at this, listen to this, because what happened to your or what happened to our ancestors are an example for us. And so then he goes on to say that the children of Israel were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. It's a strange phrase. It, it doesn't, you know, you, you think about it, what is exactly does that mean? So keep in mind that the Greek word baptizo, which was transliterated into English as baptism, the word meant to immerse or to cover over. That was the meaning of the word. And so the best understanding of verse 2, when he speaks about the children of Israel being baptized in this way, the best understanding of verse 2 then is that the children of Israel were immersed. They were covered over by the cloud, the cloud of glory of God that would accompany the children of Israel that went before them when they left Egypt and then brought them to the Red Sea and then goes before them and covers them over. The cloud that covers and the sea that envelops so that they are immersed in it. They are covered over. They're not getting wet and drowning. That happened to the Pharaoh and his army. But here they are covered over by the glory of God. And in the midst of the sea, the sea parts for them. They're walking through the midst of it. And so the best understanding of it is that they were immersed in this way to signify their new beginning. They were coming out of slavery in Egypt, coming out of bondage, coming out of all that was old in that way, and entering in to a new hope, a new life in God, a new land. They were coming in to a new beginning. So the Old Testament experience of the children of Israel was pointing to the baptism of Christ in the New Testament or the baptism we have in Christ in the New Testament, when a believer in Christ goes through a public immersion in water to signify death to the old self and that they are being raised up to new life in Christ Jesus. It's a new start. It's saying, I've come out of my bondage, my 
slavery to sin, my yoke of this kind, and I am now coming into new life in Christ Jesus. So there is this reference to baptism in this way that Paul is referring to. And again, we'll cover more about baptism in our class next Sunday or in our session next Sunday. In verse 4, Paul says that the children of Israel ate the same spiritual food, the manna, the daily provision of God that he gave for the children of Israel throughout their time in the wilderness. They ate the same spiritual food and they had the same spiritual drink. They had, uh, we know very clearly, the miraculous provision of water from the rock. And he said they had the same spiritual drink and that the rock from which this water came accompanied them and that that rock was Christ. Again, a very interesting reference. What does it mean that the rock accompanied them and that that rock was Christ? And Paul here is referring to an extra-biblical rabbinic tradition that the rock from which the water came out moved with the people as they moved through the wilderness. That was not in the Bible explicitly. There is no direct biblical confirmation of this sort of idea. And so we don't want to major on a minor point. This was a rabbinic tradition that was there at the time. But what Paul is doing is he is referring to something that would have been familiar to the story that the people would have heard. And he refers to that and he uses that to say that all of God's spiritual provision for the children of Israel was actually to provide Christ himself. So that Christ, who is prefigured, who is already seen in the Old Testament, Christ, who is known in the Old Testament, was then revealed in the New, or when he is incarnated, when he comes as man. But the whole point he's making is even the very spiritual provision that the children of, of Israel had in the wilderness, that spiritual provision was Christ himself. Christ was there. Christ was the one. You know, in, in fact, it is, that's why the Bible says even before, in, even, in crea- even in creation, there was the fact that Christ, Christ was, it was through him that things were created, that the world was created, that all was made that we see. So Christ is present throughout. So all through the time that the children of Israel are walking in the wilderness and they're receiving the spiritual food and the spiritual drink and everything else, Paul says, that was Christ. And that was the one who they experienced there who later when he would walk on the earth would say, I am the living water. I have the living water. Come to me and I will give you drink. I will give you water so that you know, he says to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, he says, if you'd get, you drank the water that I gave you, you would never thirst again. That's the living water, the spiritual drink that the Lord himself is for us. And we're going to come into this, and this is what Paul is alluding to. Very, very quickly, Paul, Jesus speaks about himself, and he says, this is my body that is broken for you. This is the bread. This is the life that I'm giving you. And so Paul is making that connection between spiritual food and spiritual drink that we share in today, in our, you know, every month even. When we partake in communion, which signifies the body of Christ 
as the bread that we break and the blood of Christ as the cup that we drink, we are saying this spiritual food, this spiritual drink that the Lord was providing for the children of Israel even in the past, he continues to do that even for us now in the present. So these connections are being made. These images are being provided, right? These truths figuratively and in ways in which that they can understand and relate to, Paul is presenting all of this. Next Sunday when we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 22, we'll come back to this reference about communion and participating in that Lord's Supper in that way. So all these things are interconnected. Now, coming back to this, you know, these, these sections in this passage that we read, in verses 6 to 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in verses 6 through 10, Paul refers to a number of incidents that are recorded primarily in Exodus and Numbers. So if you go through the Old Testament books, and particularly as you're reading in the book of Exodus, the story of how the children of Israel came out of Egypt, their exodus out of Egypt, and then you read of all the accounts that took place in the wilderness, when you read about that in the book of Numbers, and then there are other references in Deuteronomy and other places, but you will read of all these incidents that Paul refers to here in 1 Corinthians 10. Now, we're not going to read all those references. I encourage you to read those Old Testament stories on your own. Fascinating stories, illuminating stories, the whole story about the serpents, fiery serpents, and the water, and the grumbling, and the 23,000, 24,000 that were killed, you know, all of these things, just fascinating stories, and to see what the Lord was doing with the children of Israel. But I want to draw your attention, however, this morning to at least one portion from the Old Testament there, from Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 3, because those verses, they encapsulate, they give a good summary of the idolatry, the sin, and the judgment of God that was happening to the children of Israel, and it is relevant for us in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, right? So he's referring to all these incidents. I'm reading specifically from Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 3. When, while Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The rest of Numbers chapter 25 details that specific punishment of God and some you know, pretty graphic incidents and so on. But notice the sequence in these first three verses of that chapter. Now, and mind you, notice how it progresses, right? It says, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women. And then it says, and the Moabite women invite these men to sacrifices to their gods, to worship their gods, to turn their hearts. And then it says, so the men are being, are being involved in this sexual immorality. Then it says, the people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. And then it says, 
So Israel, the entire nation, yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. Many times sin in a nation doesn't start because the nation as a whole goes astray. There's just a few men, wayward men. And then all of a sudden it's their families. It's a little community. It's a group of people. And then it's the nation. It's the whole identity of the nation itself, of that group of people as a whole that says, we have now yoked ourselves to the Baal of Peor. Nations don't go down the path like that just overnight. There's a progression that's taking place. And so we see these things. We see how things are progressing and we say, oh God, help me to put a stop here. Not By the time it gets to where the nation is going astray like this, what's happening is that the judgment of God comes and every one of these people that had rebelled against God, their bodies were in the wilderness. They died. Right? So there's a consequence to this. But notice the sequence of the spiritual impact. The indulgence of sin, so the indulgence of sexual immorality, the indulgence of some specific sin, the indulgence of some giving in to appetite and desire led to the temptation of idolatry. They didn't start out by saying, I'm going to worship idols. I'm going to worship a false god. I'm going to turn away from Yahweh. They didn't start that way. They started out by saying, I want to indulge my flesh. I, I, you know, I see something, I want something, I'll get something. I want to indulge my desire. I, I, I'm coveting this. I, I, I seek this pleasure. I want this. And so they indulged themselves individually in a sin, and that started to lead to bigger and bigger consequences. So that from where they indulge their sin, now they move to idolatry, explicitly and directly worshiping Baal, the false gods. Right? And so here they are, they are worshiping these other gods, and that worship of the other gods, this temptation and this giving in to temptation to worship these idols, that leads to them then being yoked, being inextricably linked to Baal. That leads them to, being, to turning away from Yahweh, and it leads to their alienation and destruction. Do you see this? It is, it is that progression that takes them from where they were to being tempted to then being led astray. And that, that turning away, that linking to Baal, now the Bible's using this phrase, they are yoked to Baal. When, a, when cattle are yoked together, they can't go separate ways. They are now linked if one, one of that oxen you know, pulls this way, the other one can't pull the other way. They have to go together. They're yoked together. The Bible uses that phrase even to talk about marriage. Don't be unequally yoked because there is that going together that has to happen in that case. And so he says here, once you've given into this temptation, once you start to worship the idol, once you start to bow before these false gods, now you are yoked 
to this. And breaking that yoke is not something that is in our strength anymore. It requires the anointing of God. It requires the power of God. It requires an intervention from God. So there is a work of God that has to now be manifest because we've turned to Siri. We've gone this way. And we progressively have gotten to the point where we are now yoked with Baal. Idolatry is not restricted to the veneration of a physical object or bowing down and worshiping a created thing. It's not restricted to that. that it certainly is that too. But it's not restricted to that. Idolatry is when our hearts are divided. And God is no longer the exclusive and focused object of our devotion. God, the true and living God, Yahweh, God who has done all things, God the creator is not our focus anymore. He is maybe one of our focuses. He is maybe corrupted or you know, mixed in, diluted with all the other things that we are pursuing, with all the other things that we are worshiping. Our heart is divided. When we give ourselves to something or someone other than God. And that's why the Bible says, where your heart is, there will your treasure be. Where your heart is, there will your life be. Whatever you give your heart to, whatever you pursue in that way, whatever you think is very important, whatever you think you must have, whatever you give your heart to, that's where you're going to be. Your treasure will be there, your heart will be there, your life will be there, everything starts to move in that direction. So that's what idolatry is. So all of that brings us to this third section of the passage, verses 11 through 13, which says this, these things, all these things, these incidents, these consequences, these judgments, these things happen to them, the children of Israel, as examples and were written down as warnings for us. These are not just fables, myths, legends, stories. These are written down as examples and warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. All of these things that God was doing through the ages has culminated in Christ and in the gospel and in the kingdom of God. It is culminated in such a way that these things from the past, these lessons, these truths, these, these examples would now be important for us. We would pay attention to it. We would apply the word of God. We would say, I'm just, I'm just not going to listen to these things as a myth, but I'm listening to them as real life examples so that I can look at my own life and address what needs to be done. And so what is it that he says you should do? So, he says, so, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation or testing has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted or tested beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted or tested, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Wonderful statements great way in which the Lord is strengthening us, but it reminds us that we have to be children of God who will 
not be proud, but be vigilant. We will not be proud, but be vigilant. If you think you're standing firm, if you think you're doing well, if you think you're beyond attack or reproach, if you're confident in your strength and wisdom, be aware that you have made yourself vulnerable to pride and sin. If you think, I'm doing well, I'm good, you've made yourself vulnerable to pride and then sin. And through that, through that entry point, progressively, your heart starts to get divided. Right? So, as we considered even last week, knowing what it takes to run the race that is set before us means that we should continually assess where we are. We should continually determine what are the gaps in all the areas of our life, in all the areas of spiritual maturity, in all the areas or practices of spiritual disciplines. What are the gaps? And that we would continually depend on the Holy Spirit to remain steadfast in the Lord. We're not depending on our own strength. We're not saying, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm good. I've been a Christian for 50 years. I'm good. No, we're saying, Lord, I continue to depend on your Holy Spirit. And I continue to depend on your word. And I continue to depend on your truth transforming me. And I continue to depend on your work to perfect me. And I continue to depend on you sanctifying me. And I continue to depend on the body of Christ coming alongside me and encouraging me, strengthening me, sharpening me, doing that. I continue to depend on my spouse and on my family and others speaking into my life. I continue to depend on all that you would do for me. And I continue to yield and submit to that. I will not become proud to think that I have achieved something. That's the safeguard. That's the constant ass assessment. That's the vigilance we have to have. It's not just about being vigilant about the explicit attacks of the devil. We talk about it in that way. We say, be sober, be vigilant. You know, the enemy is like a prowling lion who is seeking, seeking whom he may devour. And we say, oh, you know, demonic attack. But some of these things that we're talking about here are not some explicit demonic attack. These are just subtle things, a little pride, a little sin, a little indulgence that then progressively keeps moving and pushing us, pushing us, pushing us further away from the Lord. So the, the point he's making here is, don't think you're just all okay. Keep being vigilant about your stand in the Lord. The second thing that he's saying here is, don't give in. Don't be proud, be vigilant, and then don't give in. In. Trust in God. When the temptation comes, don't give in to the temptation. Why? Because the strength to overcome, the strength to withstand, the strength to stand against that temptation doesn't come from you, it comes from the Lord. He will give you the strength to do it. The best way to deal with temptation is to rely on God. The best way to rely or and the and the to, to rely on His faithfulness. The best way to deal with that temptation is not to say, oh, I know all about this. I know how this temptation will come. I know what it will do to me. I know what thoughts I can have, and therefore, I will withstand it. 
No, but it's rather to say, oh, Lord God, I depend on you. I cry out to you. This temptation is coming. I've had this temptation before, and you've helped me to conquer it, to overcome it, to deal with it. Help me again. We keep relying on the Lord Jesus. And each time we rely on the Lord Jesus, he strengthens us even more. We crucify some part of our sinful nature with its passions and desires. We stand against that vulnerability. We shore up those areas. We mature. We start to get stronger. That doesn't mean that that temptation goes away. It may be there for all your life. That temptation to sin, that temptation to give in, that temptation to be overwhelmed, that temptation to say, it's, I can't do it. I'm done. And in the middle of it all, to keep coming back to the Lord and say, Lord, I trust in you. I trust in you. I keep coming back to you. I won't give up. Not because of myself, but because of you. Because that's what the what word here is saying. That's what Paul is, is calling for or, or pointing to. He's saying, the Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful. So, I mean, at this point, he could have and we'll get into this verse too where he talks about imitating him as he imitates Christ. But you'll notice consistently he doesn't speak about his strength. Paul doesn't say, I'm a mature believer. I could do this. You know, this is the way to resist temptation. He says, call on the Lord. Turn to him. He is faithful. And then as he talks about this, as he talks about you know, not giving in to temptation, as he talks about trusting in God, this is, this is an area that we have to pay attention to uh, constantly. So even in that first point of you know, not being proud but being vigilant about ourselves, this vigilance, this self-assessment, this evaluation of what we're doing, what we're saying, how we're living, how we're dealing with people, what we're going through, we need to be sure that we're going, doing that consistently and continually with all of the wisdom of God. Sometimes we will do a self-assessment and then we'll say, yeah, I think I'm okay. But the self-assessment is also according to the Lord's criteria, which means knowing the word of God, hearing from the Holy Spirit, being, receiving input from others, right? You know, whether it's your spouse or somebody else that can say to you, hey, here's the gap. Here's the thing you need to pay attention to. Here's something that I would encourage you about. And we do that which helps us not to give in to the temptation, but to be more than an overcomer, to be overcoming the circumstances and the situations of our life, which brings us to this point, don't give up. Don't give in, but don't give up. You know, when we, you may, it, both things may happen, right? You may give in to a temptation and then say, oh, I give up, I can't do this. Or you may not give in to a temptation, but it just gets tiring. It gets tough to keep going, right? You feel, you feel weak. You feel like, okay, I, I, I think I'm done. And the whole point that Paul is making in the section that we looked at before and in this section, and we'll keep seeing this being reinforced, is don't give up. Endure. Persevere. Keep going. Because once again, it is the Lord that is faithful. Again, last week we considered this, so I'm only making a passing reference to it, to say that Paul reminds us that God helps us to persevere. God helps us to endure every temptation. God helps us to endure every testing, every trial. We can endure. 
we can overcome because Christ overcame. Right? We're able to go through the tough situations. We're able to persevere because of what the Lord has done. I uh, recently read that Christians should be like tea bags. They should be their best when they are in hot water. So every time we face a hot water situation, something is difficult, something is going to be difficult, you know, like we say, oh, I don't want to do that. But, you know, we've got to be like a tea bag. We've got to be our best when we're put in the hot water. But here's the thing that I want to point out to you. It also means that you have to be saying, I'm entirely at the mercy of and at the direction of that person who is putting me in the hot water. This is not my decision. I'm not jumping in and out. I'm not fighting against it. I'm not complaining. I'm not doing anything. I'm saying, Lord God, you want to put me in hot water? Sure. Because I know, I know that you know me better than I know myself. I know that you know what my limits are. I know what you know what I can endure. How much will this bag take? How much? You know. So I can trust you and I can yield to you. And guess what? When all of that is said and done, that tea is not for my benefit, that tea is for the Lord. Right? The one who is putting the bag in is going to consume it, is going to enjoy it. And so everything that I would do to say, my life is poured out for you, Lord, I would do it to say, Lord God, it's for your glory. You are worthy of it all. You are the one to whom I give my life. You are the one for whom I will pour out everything. You take and use me and do whatever you want with me. That's the attitude. That's the sense. That's the presence of mind that Paul is referring to. Most of our lives we spend in pursuit of our own agenda. Most of our life, we spend in pursuit of our own goals. Most of our life, we are ambitious for the things that we have determined should be what defines our lives. The Bible doesn't speak of it like that at all. The Bible says, know the will of God. Pursue the will of God. Command or obey the commands of God. And as you do that, oh, the Lord will do everything that is necessary to build you up to make you holy, to make you like him, to fulfill his purpose in you, and to accomplish far more than you can even ask or imagine. Even more than what you can ask or imagine. What does that look like? As we looked at last week, that doesn't mean you should compare yourself to anybody. You're not competing with somebody else in this race of life. You don't say, oh, I'm fulfilling God's command and I'm obeying him and he's doing his, fulfilling his purpose in me. That means I will have this. I will be able to reach these many people. I will have this kind of thing. I will have this much of a bank balance. I will do this. No, you're not comparing yourself to somebody else. You're simply saying, Lord, you take and use and do with me whatever you will, no matter what it looks like. No matter what somebody else says. No matter if somebody else says to you, well, how come this didn't happen or that didn't happen or how come this is not true in your life? You simply keep following the Lord and looking to him so that you allow yourself to say, Lord God, because of you and what you have done, I will trust in you. Which means, and it brings us to this point of application, 
we respond and apply the word of God that we have heard by not setting our hearts on evil things as the children of Israel did. The Bible says these things are given for our example. These things are given for our instruction so that we would not set our hearts on evil things. That's discernment. You need to know of the Lord. This is evil, this is good. This is right, this is wrong. You need to know that from the Lord. You can't just assume. But when you know from the Lord, this is good and this is bad, this is evil, this is good, when you know that from the Lord, then it is making that commitment to say, I will set my heart, not on evil things, but on the things of the Lord. On those things that are right and true and noble and good and praiseworthy and excellent, those things that are of the Lord, those things that are pure, those things that are life-giving, I will set my heart on that. I will set my heart on that. You can, you know, maybe there are people in your own family, maybe you have done this, maybe you, you're going through some of that yourself right now, where you know where people have set their hearts on something that is not good. And it is destroying their lives. It is taking away their peace. It is affecting their relationships. It's having such a pervasive influence in their lives. And you know, they've set their hearts on something that is not good. The Bible is asking us, reminding us, Paul is saying here in this chapter as he writes to the Corinthians, learn from the children of Israel. Learn from our ancestors. Learn from them and do not set your heart on evil things. What does that look for us in the world today? What does that look like for us in our lives today? It's up to you. That, you know, that's for you to say to the Lord, show me, reveal to me. Let my heart be laid bare. Help me to know where my heart loyalties are. Am I pursuing something that is starting to take me away from you? Am I doing something that is corrupting my knowledge of you, the good that I have from you? Am I, is that happening, Lord? That we would ask that question, that we would pursue diligently the response of the Lord, and that we would take action on the things that he shows us. Are you indulging in some sin? Is that leading you to be tempted in certain ways? Are you giving in to a temptation? Through giving in to that, are you starting to sacrifice to or worship an idol? Something that divides your heart? And as you pursue that, are you getting yoked with that false God? Right now, as I say this, you're probably thinking of some person Maybe in your own family. Maybe an acquaintance that has gone that, down that path. The good thing about the word of God and the good thing about the Lord is that he is merciful and he is powerful to break those kind of yokes, to bring us out of that slavery. For 400 years, the children of Israel were in Egypt in slavery and saw no way out until in the fulfillment of time and in according to the Lord's purpose and will, he sent Moses and he said, I'm going to take you an unlikely man and I'm going to send you there and I'm going to use you to bring my people out. Let's keep praying for these people. 
Let's keep praying for ourselves. Let's keep coming to the Lord with intercession, fervency, with faith, with expectancy to say, Lord God, you can do this. You can do this. We trust you. We trust you. And as we do that, as we do that, oh, will there be a difference? Yes, in us individually, in our families, in our community, in our church, families around, in the state, in the nation. Just as that sin can progressively affect a nation, holiness to the Lord, commitment to Him, walking in His ways, can progressively affect a nation. It's not what we would do in the, any other realm. It is what we will do in the Lord that's going to make the difference. So this morning, again, as we, you know, these, these passages of Scripture reinforce the same point again and again and again. And I, and I say this constantly. You know, it, you don't get bored of the same message because the Bible has the same message from start to finish. Right? Let's go after the things of the Lord. Let's pursue Him with all that is in us. This morning, let's make sure to set our hearts right. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good God, that you answer prayer, that you, Lord, care about us. And Father, we thank you that you, you give us the means to resist temptation, to not be yoked with anything other than, Lord, what is your purpose and plan for us. And Father, for us to be yielded to the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit can give us discernment to know what is right, what is good, what is evil. And therefore, Lord, by your strength and power, we can set our heart on the things above, on the things of God, on the ways of God, on the truth of God, on the person of God. Lord God, grant us grace for that. All our days, we want to do that. All our days, we want to be faithful. All our days, we want to run with endurance, with perseverance, Lord, this race that is set before us. Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Jesus. Lord, we praise you that there is a victory. There is a reward. There is a crown. There is a Lord, an end of days where we can say, I have kept the faith, I have run the race. Lord God, oh, we thank you, Lord, that that is the privilege that we have as children of God that have been brought in to the family of God. We praise you for it. We worship you. We glorify your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.